We're going to read the Word of God. Um, we are going to go to First Thessalonians 3, which um, if there's a Bible in front of you, uh, that would be on page 574. And if you do not have a Bible in your household, please uh, take that Bible. Uh, it is provided by the church if you're our guest. So First uh, Thessalonians 3. Therefore, we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be the left hand at Athens alone. And we sent uh, Timothy, our brother and God co-worker, to the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourself will know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had be tempted and your labor would be in vain. Thus says the word of God. Praise the Lord. Well, I know we've prayed a lot this morning, but let's pray one more time for this time together in God's word. But Father, thank you so much for the, the word that you've provided for us. It is our life. You said in John 17, your words are life. And so, God, we thank you for that. And God, we, we, we just pray right now that it would deeply penetrate our hearts and God, that, that we would stand under the examination of the word of God today and that you would change us, you would transform us, you would shape us and mold us into your image as we um, look to your word. God, I pray for myself as I do each and every week, Lord God, knowing the weakness that is in me, the frailty that is in me, Lord God, the incapability that is in me to present your word um, without great assistance from the Holy Spirit. And so I am clinging to that assistance this morning and ask that you would be with me and strengthen me and that, that your word would be proclaimed with clarity and with accuracy. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, we uh, are continuing to look at First Thessalonians today. Thank you, Bobby, for helping us with the text. When we're born, I don't know how many of you remember the day of your birth, but when we're born, by default, and without exception, we're pursuing comfort. We're kind of geared to look to making ourselves comfortable. Think about it. As soon as a child emerges, it, it cries from the loss of comfort that it once knew. In this new reality, light and cold and sound and kinetic activity have disrupted the sense of peace and safety that it once knew in the darkness and the warmth and the, the quiet, the stillness of the womb. Everything has changed. As the child grows, it continues to grasp for every single elusive comfort. It cries when it's hungry. It cries when it's frightened. It cries when it's wet. It cries when it's dirty. It'll cry when it becomes angry at some perceived injustice. It, it'll cry when it's injured physically or emotionally. When it wants something that's being withheld for any reason, again, it will cry out. Prodded by this pursuit of ultimate comfort, I don't know if you've noticed this, but because there's this constant pursuit of comfort, very early in life, the child sets itself up as the absolute king and sovereign of all it surveys. Everybody knows that? Has anybody ever experienced the joy of a two-year-old tyrant? Anybody? It's fun. And they, they, they set themselves up as lord and sovereign with literally no thought whatsoever given to the sacrifices that such a lofty role requires of everyone that's around them. Think about it. Mom is tired. Amen, Mom? Mom is tired. Mom really, really, really needs to sleep. Tough. Tough. The hunger of that little one must be attended to on the double. Brother or sister has the audacity to be holding the toy that they want. Well, it has to be surrendered immediately 
As soon as the child shrieks, mine! No one's ever seen this, right? No one, this is all brand new to you. You should be taking notes because I'm sure nobody's ever experienced this. So this desire to be catered to, it's, it's innocently reinforced by the parent's response to the helplessness of the child. The child is helpless. The child needs things. If you didn't respond to that, then the child would starve to death. The child would not get the care that it needs. So we innocently reinforce that. But what I want you to see and what I want you to focus on this morning is that response of the child is not helped by the fact that the child, every one of them, has inherited the same sinful, selfish heart that their parents have. Every one of them. No one said amen on that. The child, what I'm trying to explain to you is the same child that cries for comfort when it's frightened or for nourishment when it's hungry. That same child is the same one who will, who will cry out again in protest whenever a parent says no. Two little words can cause an entire meltdown because the child is king. The child is sovereign. The child is pursuing their own comfort. And a will, the conclusion of all this for me is that a will that is centered on ourselves, the way that we become so self-absorbed, self-focused, self-centered, a will that is centered on ourselves is the universal condition of every person that has ever been born. You are your favorite person. An exception to this rule cannot be found. Search the world high and low, all across, from sea to shining sea, from every country on the face of the earth. You will not find an exception to this no matter where you look. Now, here's the bad news. We've already sent all the kids out of here, so here's the bad news. As you grow older, nothing much changes. Oh, sure, you may or may not, but you may not throw a temper tantrum in the middle of Walmart because you didn't get a toy, but your but your focus and your you're geared, you're, you're geared to, to pursue and seek and desire everything that, that you know, is your own comfort. Now, we may look at this and we may say, well, he's just or she is just introspective. Uh, and because they're obsessing about what we mean or, or what our purpose in life is or how we can make an impact on this great big world or give our lives some sense of grand meaning. But I want you to see that even that kind of introspection is similar to the demands of the baby in the crib. Why? Because the focus is me, only me. So we spend our, life, our, our adult lives crafting identities and crafting reputations so that we can feel like we are somebody. I think social media was invented for this very purpose. Remember Brad Paisley's song, I'm So Much Better Online? And that's kind of, that's kind of the way we, we approach social media. Those, those Instagram filters are the bomb, I'm telling you. So we pursue bigger, better material things to achieve a sense of meaning, an external reminder for ourselves and for everyone around us that we have made it. And we don't particularly care for the changing seasons of life none of us do we like sameness we would prefer that the emotional physical and financial thermostat of our lives be set at a constant 72 degrees amen so to avoid any disruption of the established order we compromise we negotiate we we're bending some rules and we're breaking others and we're always excusing ourselves even when we make up entirely new rules so that we can ensure our preferred self-centered and self-satisfying outcomes. Our, our position as kings and queens seated upon our velvet pillows may demand that we lie. It may demand that we cheat. It may demand that we uh, uh, sacrifice our ethics, our morals. It will often inconvenience others or injure others to achieve our end. But so what? As long as I'm king, who cares? So what? But we soon discover a major problem with our demand for unending uh, tribute and worship. We, we, we discover a huge problem. Can you guess what that is? The problem is, see, we live in a world where everyone else 
is also looking out for only for their own interests. Can you see the potential conflict in that? So we push and we shove and we demand our way while others are doing the exact same thing. And all the time, all of us are cursing each other's selfish, selfishness and each other's inconsideration, but we rarely even consider our own. And sadly, this is my area of interest, the church has often not done much to curb these narcissistic impulses, done very little to tap the brakes on that. For example, think about it. We, we invite people to make Christ their personal Lord and Savior. It's all about me and Jesus, our personal Lord and Savior. We promise them that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And this concept appeals to us because it focuses on my favorite person, me. Not Jesus, me. I'm my favorite person, so I want to, uh, to have my own personal Savior. If I have a personal Savior, maybe you don't have one, and I can brag about that too. And, and, and when God has a wonderful plan for my life, to heck with your life, God has a wonderful plan for my life. Tom Hall, my buddy, loves to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your plan. Even one of the best-selling Christian authors today, he's known for his wildly popular titles. He sells millions of books. And their titles are things like, Become a Better You, Your Best Life Now, Think Better, Live Better, and It's Your Time. This guy's TV and radio broadcasts are an unending feast of affirmation sugary sweet they remind you how great and how inherently good you are these sort of things that you hear make you feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside but listen to me carefully these things are patently unbiblical and they're no better not one single bit better than the mumbo jumbo that motivational gurus like tony robbins are selling same thing exact same thing but then Along in our lives comes something that we call the gospel. It comes the biblical gospel, what the Bible defines. And as soon as we open the Bible, if we're seriously reading the Bible, we find an incredibly different divergent view of who you and I actually are. We are not kings and queens, but rather it is pointed out, that we're sinners, that we're all rebels shaking our fist against God. And we're living in a world that has also fallen, 100% of us. It's a world that is literally driven by a whip of the idol of self. It's filled with destruction and war and famine and disease and crime. It's a world where the powerful rule... And the weakest among us gets stepped on. It's, it's the principal value of this fallen world system that surrounds us can be simply stated. Might makes right. And that's the rules of this life. But the gospel says that to be rescued, I've got to pull myself off of the, the, the throne and, and to be delivered from the cycle of madness. I have to put all of my hope, not in myself, but in Jesus Christ, who is so perfect, Jesus is so perfect that I don't even have to try to be anymore. And, and more than that, I don't even have to pretend to be perfect. I can take off my mask because Jesus is perfect for me and I've put all of my hope in him. He's someone who has paid for me the enormous debt of all of my wrongdoing, which I never could have done. And because of that, we can have not only a clean slate, that's nice, but it's not just that we have a clean slate. Listen, we have a slate that can never again be corrupted. Why? Because it's no longer about me and my works. It's about Jesus and his perfect, completed work. Believing the gospel? We are saved. We're rescued from that cycle of madness. But we find that even though we're saved from the world's corruption and its self-centered decay, we aren't removed from living in this world. We're still right smack in the middle of it. We're surrounded by people who still have the same selfish heart that you and I are progressively 
being delivered from by the gospel. And this shouldn't really shock us. It it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't rock us. We're we're right where we belong. Everybody say, I'm right where I belong. Oh, come on. Now say it like you mean it. I'm right where, I wouldn't lie to you. Say, I'm right where I belong. There you go. See, Jesus, you may not know this, but Jesus actually prayed for you. The night before he was crucified, John 17, the whole chapter, he prays for you. And he prays this tidbit. He says, he prays that we would be left in the, in the world for as long as we live. Listen, John 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's praying to his father. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them in the world from the evil one. They are not of the world. When you believe the gospel, a transformation takes place, and you are no longer the product of this world system. You're not of the world. And Jesus says, just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And here's the proof that God wants you right here. And you sent me, Father, into the world, so I, Jesus, have sent them into the world. You are right where you belong with all of its attendant dangers all of its attendant disappointments you are right where jesus christ the son of god wants you we're in the world because jesus wants us here we're not called to be monks or nuns that hide away in some monastery or convent but we're to be an influential presence in the world that we occupy to the glory of god but because the world is still Doing what we did from birth, they're chasing ease, they're chasing wealth, they're chasing power. The people of God become kind of a fly in the ointment to the people of the world because we have chosen to follow Lord King Jesus. Because we're the ones, like John the Baptist, who are crying out for them to flee from the coming wrath. A state of hostility exists between the followers of Christ and those who are children of the world. The people of the world... And the people of the flesh don't want to be reminded of the promised, guaranteed doom. And they sure don't want to be reminded that they need to repent and to submit to God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy, and we like easy. The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The lost world likes things wide and easy. And they don't want to be troubled with the idea that the, the only way that leads to life is narrow and it's hard. In their mind, Christians are an unnecessary, very uptight annoyance. Although Christians have to strive. Don't misunderstand this. When I say that there's, there, there's, there's no peace that exists between us, I'm not, don't misunderstand me that we're declaring war on anybody. Christians have to strive to be peaceful and, and hospitable. And there can ne- but, but with that being said, that we have to be peaceful and hospitable, there can never be a treaty with the world's lies that lead people into eternal destruction. Because of this, there's never going to be a cessation of hostilities between the children of God and those of the world who are lovers of pleasure and not lovers of God, as Paul defines them. Matthew 11. I love this verse. Jesus said it. He says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Listen, as Christians, we refuse to sing and dance to the world's tune. We refuse to. We don't sing the same notes that they sing. We don't dance the same steps that they dance. And it makes them very, very angry. Our swimming upstream is disruptive to their consciousness. It robs them of their semblance of peace and their sense of the way things ought to be. Paul told the Thessalonians, Bobby read it to us this morning when he was with them, that we were to suffer affliction. And he says, just as it has come to pass, just as I told you, Thessalonians, it's come to pass. And he says, just as you know, because you're experiencing it. He made 
Listen to this, and I want you to think about this. Think about the message you heard when you gave your heart to Jesus. And I would, I would venture to guess that almost none of you, if any of you, heard a message like Paul preached. And what I mean by that, I'm not criticizing who you heard it from or anything. It's just kind of a cultural thing that has shifted, even though it shouldn't have shifted. See, Paul made the promise of suffering a part of his gospel presentation. Let that sink in for a second. Who in here heard a message when you came to Christ that if you follow Jesus, it will cost you everything and possibly even your life? Who heard that? I didn't. I didn't. This was a direct teaching of Jesus to his disciples. Again, on the night before his crucifixion, he said, If the world hates you, know this, that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Over my lifetime, I've seen many different ways that I can't catalog for you this morning in the way that the church or leaders in the church have tried to make the world or the church more world friendly, try to make it more comfortable and less burdensome on their consciences. And and I'm here to tell you, this may be discouraging to some of you, it will not. And furthermore, it cannot work. The gospel is incredibly offensive to the mind of the lost. And it takes the Holy Spirit's just constant prodding for someone to say the gospel is right and my pursuit of my own ease, comfort, and wealth and power is wrong. In the city of Lystra, during Paul's first missionary journey, the angry Jews stirred up the crowd to literally take all the rocks they could find and pelt Paul's body with it. They called it stoning. You've heard of that. But when they were certain that he was dead after just, just beating his body with rocks, for preaching the gospel, when they were certain he was dead, uh, uh, he, they, they just dragged his carcass out of town. Just dusted the, hands, the, the, the dust off their hands and just left him for dead. But unfortunately, he wasn't dead. And he went right back to preaching. Got up, dusted himself off, went right back to preaching. And he even continued the missionary journey with Barnabas. Now, how many of you, again, I'm not judging you. I'd probably be the same way. I hope I, hope I wouldn't, but you never know. If you face something like that on a mission trip that we all went on, somebody threw rocks at you, how many of you would say, all right, well, we'll do this again tomorrow? Or would you say, we need to get to the airport now. We need to see if we can change these tickets, get home, get, get out of here ASAP. But Paul didn't. He said, that's what I'm called to. Let's go do this. It's interesting when, when Paul was converted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. A man uh, named Ananias went to pray for him. And when Ananias said, hey, uh, God, this, this guy Saul, who Paul's former name, he said, this guy Saul is, is arresting and killing Christians. And, and uh, God told Ananias, he said, go to him. And listen to what he said. He said, for I've showed him how much he must suffer for my name. Wow. So he goes back on this missionary journey with Barnabas, and, and as they're kind of proceeding on their journey, Derby and Lystra were, were kind of uh, sister cities, and it says when they had preached the gospel to that city, to Derby, and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium and to Antioch. Now listen to what they did. They strengthened the souls of the disciples, they encouraged them to continue in faith, and listen, and they told them, they said that, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There are three things I want you to notice from this text. First, the Bible says that they strengthened the souls of their disciples. This corresponds to Paul saying in the text that Bobby read that he sent Timothy back to the Thessalonians to establish them. And this word establish means to set in place or to fix to, 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 to bolt them down, as it were, to establish them. And he's implying that even with the gospel message he initially preached to them, that the Thessalonians were not yet fully, firmly rooted. And the Bible tells us that we are rooted and grounded. If you'll remember this from the book of Colossians, it tells us that we're rooted and grounded by always adhering, not just when we get saved, but always, every day, daily, adhering to what we've been taught in the gospel. 
And that means that we grow roots, we deepen our roots, not only by our belief at the beginning when we say yes to the Lord Jesus, but by continually turning our attention to God's Word. So Timothy returned to give them further instruction in the gospel. And I'm here to tell you, seriously listen to me, if you call yourself a Christian, listen to me. If you neglect the study of God's Word, the Bible, if you neglect gathering with the body to have the Bible taught to you, you will not stand when tribulation and persecution come. You won't. You can't. We're rooted and grounded by adhering to God's Word. Second, the Bible also says that they encourage them to continue in the faith. This corresponds with Paul saying to Timothy, or that Timothy rather, return to the Thessalonians to exhort them in the faith. Exhortation is a really cool word in the Greek. It's a loaded word. It means a lot. An exhortation, the act of exhorting someone, it's a spiritual gift that entails doing the things for someone else that the Holy Spirit does for us. Let me demonstrate. To exhort someone means to comfort them. The Holy Spirit is called our comforter in Scripture. To instruct them. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. It means to strengthen them, to encourage them, to admonish or warn them. All of that is tied up in the word exhortation. So what do we learn from that? We learn that, that uh, the Thessalonians needed not just an initial prayer prayed to receive Jesus, but they needed a community of other believers who would, who would comfort, who would strengthen, who would admonish, all of that stuff happening at the same time. Lastly, Paul says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Focus there on the word must. Though you and I have come to the gate of the kingdom of God by nothing more than faith, by nothing more than putting our trust off of ourselves and onto Jesus, though that's how we got here and got in, we are promised that the path that leads us into the kingdom will be attended with trouble and with sorrow. Amen. The path that we walk from the moment of belief, we're promised in God's word that it will be attended with trouble and sorrow. And if you're like me, and I imagine many of you are, at least in this way, you have gone through serious tribulation and thinking, if I'm a Christian, if I'm a follower of Christ, why is this happening to me? And I would say to you, it's happening to you because you're a believer, because you're a follower of Christ. And when you know that, it strengthens you, it comforts you, it, it carries you when you know that. The kingdom of God is attended with trouble and sorrow. And, and, and the problem with that is that trouble has the potential to make people bail on Jesus. And it doesn't matter where the source of the trouble is. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. I have spoken over the years to many, many people who are disillusioned because Christianity hasn't turned out like they imagined Anybody ever met anybody like that? This Jesus stuff doesn't work, man. I've had more trouble since I gave my life to Jesus. It doesn't work. It's not how I imagined. It's not how I was promised. But that's exactly why Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians to establish and exhort them. He said that no one be moved by these afflictions. He knew that tribulation outside of a, a Christ-centered worldview, worldview could be absolutely devastating. It can, it can rock your world. The Thessalonians couldn't make it without understanding the Word. They couldn't make it without the encouragement of their loving brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul reminds the church in this letter to the Thessalonians, he reminds the church that we are destined for this. You, believer, you, follower of Christ, like it or not, do what you will to avoid it. If you're truly a follower of Christ, listen to me. You are on a collision course with trouble. You're destined for this. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You will not avoid it. You will not dodge the bullet. We are destined for this. 
He said this about the persecution they were facing. It was guaranteed. There's no avoiding it. This is the central truth of the passage we read this morning. If you are truly following Christ, you will not dodge the bullet of tribulation and persecution. And and sometimes the line between tribulation and persecution is hard to discern. Why? Because tribulation sure feels like persecution. And while persecution is definitely a, a, a tribulation, All of us will experience a little of both while we follow Jesus. All of us, if we're truly following Jesus. Generally, I'll try to define both for you as best as I can. Generally, tribulation is the devil's direct assault on you, or it's the loving discipline of the Father, or it's merely the result of living in a fallen world where everyone's just as sinful as you are. But persecution, on the other hand, is usually... The world's hostile resistance to the gospel because they're not of they are of the world where we are not. So there's this hostile resistance to the gospel. And you can take great comfort from knowing that as you face trouble, listen to me, hear this, open your ears wide. You can take great comfort from knowing that as you face trouble and as you're persecuted, that no less than Jesus Christ has experienced all of it all the same before you ever did. Before you ever will, Jesus already endured it himself. You will not experience any affliction that Christ himself did not overcome before you faced it. Isaiah 53.3, which is a prophecy of the coming Messiah of Jesus, he says this. He says, he was despised and rejected by men. What is that? It's persecution. Despised, rejected by those around him. He had... he. He was rejected. He was persecuted by those around him. We know now from being on this side of the story that 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 persecution took the place of severe beating and being nailed to a cross. But it also says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's tribulation. He had sorrow. He had grief. Things always didn't in the natural work in Jesus's favor. He he cried. He wept. He saw friends die. He things were tough at times. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said, Rest assured that in whatever way of suffering we have to go, in consequence of our being a child of man, and especially in consequence of being a child of God, we will find that Christ has gone that way ahead of us. You might think, sitting there today, you might think, Mark, come on, this is no way to present Christianity to the world. This is no way to entice people to believe And maybe we should focus just on the positives. Maybe we should go back to a little bit of that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Surely it can't be all that bad. It surely beats telling people that if you follow Jesus, you might not survive. Who would want to follow a Christ if that's what the promise is? Great question. And yet, beginning... With the apostles, 11 of the 12 of them, if you include the Apostle Paul, and repeated countless times in every generation of the church since, many have chosen to suffer and even die rather than forsake the connection that they had with the risen Lord. Many, many, many. In the 1500s, English Bible translator William Tyndale. The Bible wasn't in English, it was only in Latin, and he set out to change that, and it made the Catholic Church very angry, and so they arrested him. He's translated the Bible, they arrest him, they strangle him to death while he's tied at the stake, and then they burned his dead body. But as he was dying, he cried as loud as he could while they were strangling, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. So his thoughts were still on God, let this gospel go forward even as I'm dying. Even as my flame is being extinguished, let another one burn, God. But martyrdom, you know, we tell stories of the apostles and people in the 1500s, the reformers. But let me let, me let you know something. Some of you may be aware of this. Some of you may not be aware of this at all. I looked all this up this week. It shocked me. I knew some of it, but, but just the numbers shocked me. Martyrdom has not ceased even in modern, modern times. All around the world right now, people are in trouble. In fact, the last year, 
over 245 million Christians were living in places where there were high levels of persecution. What does that mean, high levels of persecution? It means that just for following Jesus, you might be raped, you might be oppressed politically, you might be tortured, you might be imprisoned, and you might even be executed just because you are a follower of Christ. In the last year alone, over 4,000 people paid the ultimate price and were put to death. 4,000 in one year, 4,000 people were put to death simply because they were followers of Christ. 4,000. That's more than died on 9-11. 4,000 people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, would not recant and face all manner of horrific death because they were followers of Jesus. By some estimates, 65% of all Christian martyrdom in history, that means since Jesus ascended till now, 65% of all Christian martyrdom in history happened not in the Colosseums of Rome, but throughout the 20th century. 65%. That means over 1,900 years, 35% uh, happened, and over one century, 65% of it happened. Not getting better, folks. It's not getting better. The heat is turning up. And, and, And the heat is turning up so those who are truly followers of Christ will be revealed, and those who are not will be exposed. So it would seem that the persecution that I'm talking about this morning is still the normal expectation of the Christian life. Problem, big problem if you ask me. Many of us would have to admit, sitting here today in our comfortable, climate-controlled, well-lit building, that we have faced very little persecution, if any at all, though we claim to be Christ followers. I don't know why exactly. Well, I could probably guess why. But that really bothers me. As a believer, as a follower of Christ, it bothers me that some of my brothers and sisters in Malaysia, Nigeria, North Korea would be suffering things that I have been absolutely spared from. It bothers me. If that is what's promised to us, if we are, as Paul said, destined for this, why aren't we facing it? There may be a few reasons. Let's start with the positive. Perhaps... We've been shielded from persecution by the grace of God. See, I don't want to infect all of you with some kind of martyr mentality. We are never called ever to go looking for persecution. In fact, the Bible says, as much as lies within you, live peaceably among all men. So we're never supposed to go searching out some way for someone to, to beat us, imprison us, kill us. We're never supposed to go looking for that. But we are called to embrace it. When we come, when it comes rather. So if we're not experiencing persecution, maybe we should rejoice. However, again, I'll remind you that Paul says we're destined for this. And through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So I don't think we can simply breathe a collective sigh of relief thinking that we've won some cosmic lottery. That we dodged something that others haven't. Lack of persecution Please, I know I've said this a lot, but please hear me. Lack of persecution may be an indication that something is wrong. Perhaps we're not persecuted, perhaps, because though we claim that Jesus is Lord, we're still maintaining the pursuit of ease that I described at the first. Maybe, just maybe, we don't look or sound different enough to the culture around us to be perceived as a threat. We love the reputation we've crafted. We love the things that the world offers. And so we may be fine with religious affiliation. Yeah, I'll show up to church. I'll, you know, give to a TV preacher. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, listen to Caleb on my car. We may be fine with religious affiliation, but very few of us have considered or embraced the cost of, of, of following Jesus above all else. No matter what boat it rocks, that we're following Jesus. James 4.4 4 is such a blasting accusation of us all when he says, You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That word enmity is not the same as enemy, although it implies that. It means to take an absolute, hostile, rebellious, you know, in your face, shake my fist in your face, uh, hurl slings and arrows at you. It's that kind of thing. It's enmity with God. It's, It's to be at war with God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. And listen to me, if you are the friend of the world, you're the enemy of God, and an enemy of God can never expect to be persecuted in this life. Never. You're on the same team. Why would, why would, why would anything negative happen to you as one who's embracing the world? Why? No point in it. Compromise. It's not acceptable to us. This shaking hands, this, this kind of detente with the world, this, this, uh, this little you know, uh, live and let live attitude is not acceptable for us. We have to be, if we're truly followers of Jesus, we have to be devoted to Christ far above everything else. It's a matter this morning, it boils down to this, what do we value If what I value, if what I desire, if what I want, if what I treasure is all that the world offers, popularity, wealth, ease, if that's what I treasure, I'll never draw the fire of the world or the devil. Never. Never going to happen. And most of us, even in sitting in this room, are just fine with that. We'll continue to compromise. We'll continue our worldly pursuits and fleshly desires because, quite frankly, we don't want the the fire of the world. We certainly don't want the fire of the devil, and we're just fine with that. But in your idolatry, listen to me, in your idolatry, you will someday draw the fire of God for all eternity. If you avoid the fire of the enemy, if you avoid the fire of the world, you will not avoid the fire of God's judgment and God's wrath. In Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man who selfishly despises this beggar that sits outside his window named Lazarus. And when they both die, the Bible tells us that Lazarus is carried to heaven by the angels while the rich man is cast into the fires of hell. And and when the rich man is in there and he's tormented, he he appeals to Abraham on the other side of this great gulf, and he asks that Lazarus can come and just, just momentarily comfort him in his torment. And this is what Abraham says to him. He says, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. See, if you recognize Jesus as the pearl of great price, as the treasure hidden in a field, you will be willing, progressively, day by day, increasingly, you will be willing to suffer any loss, endure any hardship, and even May the opportunity come to face death, to face death in this life, just to have him and to please him. That his, the treasure of who he is is so great to you that you would rather have your body shredded by bullets than to not have him. That there's no treasure, there's no wealth, there's no reputation in this world that could be better to you than the reputation of being a follower, a slave of Jesus Christ. You'll view it, if that time comes, you'll view it as a fair and as a just cost for the simple joy of being able to fellowship with Jesus Christ in his suffering. 1 John 2.15, a warning from the Apostle John, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Pause. That means that if you are pursuing the things of the world with very little thought given to Jesus outside of maybe a week of Sunday attendance every once in a while or maybe a few bucks thrown in an offering, if that's the way you're following Jesus, the Bible says the love of the Father is not in you. That What that means is two things. You cannot claim that you love God. 
You cannot. You're lying to yourself. It's hypocritical. It's deceptive. It's inconsistent. But also that you cannot uh, claim to be in the love of God in the sense of, of your own salvation. You have, not, you have not embraced God on his terms, so you can't even claim to be a Christian. Don't love the world. Don't love the things of the world. Listen, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the, of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And here's what you need to know if you're chasing the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. All that stuff that you're grasping with white knuckles to hold on to, it will someday very soon be gone. Just like all the, rich, the, the wealth of the rich man in Jesus' parable, it'll someday be gone. Be dust blown out of your hands. But what I want you to see is that the command not to love this world is not a pulpit-pounding, turn-or-burn, hellfire and brimstone thing. It's not just a thou shalt not restriction. There is a great promise associated with that passage. The last part of verse 17 says this, Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what you clutch to from the world is passing away. It's getting blown away. It's not going to last. What you do as a, as a, 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 a someone who is obeying the will of God to submit to him as Lord and Savior, that will never end. That will never pass away. You are laying up, as Jesus said, for yourself treasures in heaven that cannot fail, that cannot pass away. Trading all the value All that we value, rather, so that we might have Jesus shows that we are very wise. We are people who are building our house on a rock. We can have what is pleasurable here, but it will not last. Or we can have some trouble here, sustained by the grace of God, only to find lasting treasure here in this life and in the one to come. And when you compare the so-called treasures of this world to the eternal treasure of knowing Jesus, or the so-called treasures of the world to the eternal treasure of knowing Jesus, and you compare that to the, to the trinkets of the world the, the, the world is offering you, there is no comparison. There's no comparison. Jesus Christ is worth more than all the gold, silver, rubies, diamonds, jewels in the world. He is worth everything. He is worth whatever it costs us, even our own lives. I'm going to ask our communion workers to come every week. We complete our service with communion. And communion is a, uh, it's a representative act. In other words, um, Jesus instituted it. And when he instituted it, he said, this is my body when he spoke of the bread. And this is my blood, which is the, which is the, the cup. And so what I want to remind you of is that when Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, I've said this before, but that word if is conditional. You are not required to come after him. You have a choice, if. But he said, if anyone does choose to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. So the act of following Christ, in order to be valid, requires the embracing of a cross. Now you can't, like I said, you can't make yourself be persecuted. I mean, if you want to go out in the parking lot, Daryl, let Daryl beat you up. I'm sure he'll he'll do that. But, but that's not what I'm talking about. You can't make yourself be persecuted. But what you have to do, even in your comfortable American Christianity, is you have to embrace the cross. That at any moment, at any hour, Christ can require all of you, all of your reputation all your stuff, and every last breath, every drop of blood, Jesus can require all of you. So because our commitment is to share the Lord's Supper, Jesus said to do it often, and so we share the Lord's Supper together every week. I always try to spend a little time thinking about what I would say to you. And we've talked about how communion is a reminder of what Christ did. It's a reminder that he's coming back. He said, do this until I come. It's a reminder that we are one body. All of that is is true. But as you take the cup or as you look at the cup this morning, as you take a broken piece of bread, I want to remind you, since Jesus has invited you to the same cross, he said, if you follow me, you've got to take up your cross. I want you to remember 
and force yourself to wake up from your American slumber and remember that the way of the cross is a bloody one. The way of the cross is a bloody one. The tracks up Calvary are marked with footprints of blood. The people who take up their cross, their bodies are pierced. Their backs are whipped. Their life flows out of them as as they are suffocating and and thirsty. Their their life goes. And yet, for those of of us that take up our cross and we follow Jesus in those bloody footsteps, we have this promise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's the promise. So if if the cross costs you something today, embrace it. If the cross costs you everything, including your life someday, embrace it. Lay it all down. Accept it. Say in this act of taking a representation of Christ's broken body and his spilled blood, say, yea, Lord, even my own, whatever it costs, let it be. Let it be. Because I want you. This isn't about just a martyr mentality. Oh, I hope we all die for Jesus. No. It's about saying what we treasure is Jesus and not the silly follies of this world. We treasure Jesus. We treasure Jesus. So, as I often ask you, bow your head before I read the scripture, before I break the bread. I want you to ask yourself a series of questions. I want you to ask yourself, do I in fact, do I in fact treasure Jesus above all else? What is it that would make me deny Jesus? If a shooter came in here now and said, I'm blowing away everybody who who won't deny the Lord, would that be enough? If you had to uh, give up your reputation and look like a fool at work, would that be enough? If you had to deny yourself some material things so that you could sow more into the kingdom and maybe even change your life and go be a missionary yourself or or plant a church or, or support somebody who does, if you had to scale down your life to do that, is that enough to make you deny Jesus? Maybe you just are at the level where just a simple embarrassment would make you deny Jesus. Maybe a minor injury would make you deny Jesus. Don't lie to yourself this morning. It's easy in a moment where soft music is playing and, you know, passionate preaching is going on that you could say, oh, no, I'd do anything for Jesus. Be honest. Search your soul. I'm here to tell you, you're probably not going to be able to make your heart comply with what you know and what you treasure in Jesus. But what I want you to do is simply this. Confess it. Be honest with your Savior and say, God, I want you to be my one treasure. I want you to be my one treasure. I want you to be more valuable to me than what anybody thinks about me. I want you to be more valuable to me than anything I could have in this life. I want you to be more valuable to me than my health. And I want you to be more valuable to me than my very own life. So, Lord, if you were to demand my very life, I would surrender it gladly because I belong to you. Ask him. Search yourself. Let the Holy Spirit even better search you. then when the time comes and you come and you take this piece of bread and dip it in this cup that you say as it was for Jesus I'm willing let it be so for me if necessary you're here this morning and you either know that you have never made Christ Jesus your Lord or you don't know whether you have or not please don't add to your troubles by coming and taking of this bread and this cup until you have made clear in your mind where you stand with Jesus. 